Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Jennifer Wiseman is an astrophysicist, uh, and as such, she studies the formation of stars and planetary systems, uh, where she uses a variety of telescopes, radio telescopes, optical telescopes, uh, infrared, including the Hubble telescope. Uh, Dr. Wiseman studied physics for her bachelor's degree at MIT, and she earned her PhD in astronomy from Harvard, and we are delighted to have uh, Dr. Wiseman in our studio today. Uh, hello, Dr. Wiseman. Hello. Uh, you speak a lot uh, in public settings uh, that uh, promote the uh, understanding of science in communities of faith and vice versa. Um, how does uh, someone who's raised in the Ozarks, like I was, how does, uh, how does someone uh, in the Ozarks become interested in science and astronomy in particular? Great question. So I grew up in a rural community in north central Arkansas in the lovely town of Mountain Home. I still go back to my hometown frequently. Uh, but we lived out of town in a little uh, farm area, and uh, there, at that time there was no university nearby our hometown. I didn't know any scientists. Um, but I love nature. I think by being exposed to the natural world early on, I had a, a, a great appreciation of nature, of, of plants and animals. I love animals and, and, uh, and streams and forests and the night sky um, because we had a dark night sky, which is becoming a more rare commodity with all of our light pollution these days. But I was able to wander around at night and look up and see stars from horizon to horizon and just imagine what must be up there. And, and at that time, when I was growing up, we were the, the first probe was being sent from NASA uh, to other uh, planets uh, uh, and, and to see their moons was sending back imagery that was just fascinating to me. And I wanted to be a part of that whole enterprise of exploring space. I just didn't know how. But I think an appreciation of the natural world was was the, the root of my subsequent entry into science, which is basically a, a study of the natural world. So uh, you're an astrophysicist. Uh, what is that? That is basically the, the application of physics, which is really just the study of the basic fundamental forces of nature, uh, specifically to the study of the universe and the cosmos. So that's where the astro comes in. Physics I uh, majored in as an undergraduate because I, I understood at, through high school that physics is basically understanding the fundamentals of how the natural world works. Things like gravity and light and radiation, things we kind of take for granted every day, but they're governed by certain principles of natural law. And I just found that fascinating when I was in high school. I really appreciate my high school teachers uh, for encouraging us to learn some of these basic principles and to be uh, confident that we could go on and try anything that we, that we wanted to um, going on with this basic understanding. 
And so then with that love of physics, and by the way, mathematics is intimately involved with physics, and I I thought that was just fascinating to me when I was in high school that you could use a simple algebra equation to, to predict things about physical forces and it all worked together beautifully. And, and of course, as I went on to study physics in, in, uh, in the university setting, I found out that that relationship gets more sophisticated, but is still very beautiful. Um, and that I could apply all of that to my love of space and my curiosity about the universe. Uh, that, that was a, a wonderful uh, um, uh, marriage, if you will. So that, that's what astrophysics is all about. So what particular areas of astronomy or astrophysics uh, is your area of interest or expertise? So my areas of interest are everything. So I'm really interested in everything from our own solar system neighborhood, our our own uh, planets and um, comets and asteroids in our own solar system, to uh, the distant universe, which would mean stars in other galaxies and even the universe as a whole. So my interest is everywhere. But my specific expertise based on my training and research in graduate school is in this field of star formation because it turns out that stars are not eternal. They actually come and go and they're continuing to form in interstellar clouds. So. Um, when you look up at night, I hope you can see lots of stars and how beautiful they are, but, but uh, you should also know that they're wonderful and they're transient. Um, of course, it takes a long, long time, but we, with our telescopes that can see into some of these dense interstellar clouds, like infrared telescopes and radio telescopes, we can actually see these hidden sites where new stars are forming. All a star is is just a little ball of gas in these interstellar clouds that ends up collapsing under its own weight, kind of gravitational pull. But when you get enough pressure in a little ball of gas and dust, it incites a reaction called fusion. And fusion reactions, where hydrogen atoms combine and form heavier atoms, release light. That's why we see stars. And they also create heavier elements, like carbon and nitrogen and oxygen, as well as helium. And these uh, products, if you will, of, of stars eventually get dispersed into uh, the, the rest of the galaxy and, and are quite interesting. So star formation is an active process and we're using different kinds of telescopes to study this and it's relevant to uh, the kinds of atoms and things that we enjoy in our life today um, coming from stars. So that's what I study. Uh, that's an interesting, that brings up um, a very interesting question about our star and our solar system. Uh, I've read that in order for the heavy elements uh, that we have on our planet, everything from iron and other metals, that we're talking something that required several generations of stars. So uh, what, do, uh, what, does, uh, what do astronomers understand to be the number of generations of stars uh, that we see in, like, our galaxy? In other words, are we talking one, two, three generations? How many gen? What generation is our star? That's a very good question. So our star, our sun is not first generation because it actually has what we call heavier elements in it. Now to an astronomer, if you think of that, that periodic table you learned back in your chemistry class, you remember that the simplest elements are hydrogen and helium. 
But anything heavier than that, astronomers consider a heavy element because most of the universe is made of hydrogen and a little bit of helium. But stars, as I mentioned earlier, are these little factories where the fusion process inside is creating not only the brilliant light that we see, but these heavier elements like carbon and oxygen. And then these get dispersed, and then they can then be caught up in the next generation of stars. So we know that our sun is at least not a first-generation star. Now, whether it's a third, fourth, fifth, or tenth, I'm not an expert on that. But I will tell you that um, it's the bigger stars, bigger than our sun, that are responsible for most of these heavier elements that end up in stars like our sun. And the reason for that is that the, the bigger stars don't live as long. So they form very quickly, they uh, uh, use up their fuel more quickly, and then they disperse it. They, they end their lives, if you will. Of course, they're not alive, but they end their existence as a star uh, more quickly and disperse their material much more quickly than stars like our sun, which take a lot longer to form and, and they last a lot longer. So we know there have been several generations of these bigger stars come and go. And then our sun has, has kind of swept up some of that material, as well as many other stars has done, have done the same thing. And so it is just fascinating uh, to know that our universe is very dynamic um, and interconnected. And I find that just fascinating. Well, I am going to come back to the idea of giant stars exploding uh, in just a little bit. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning that you and I uh, grew up in the Ozarks, and whenever you talked about the night sky, and one of the things that the Ozark Mountains can still provide uh, is uh, a, are areas in which there is relatively little light pollution. Uh, I still go home uh, occasionally and drive out to somewhere where there are no mercury vapor lights, uh, and I can lay, I think of the last time I uh, laid in the bed of the pickup, looked up, and just watched the stars, uh, and was amazed at what one can see. Uh, there's a sense of, there's a sense of wonder and awe. Can you, can you tell me what, what role does awe or wonder play in the, in the scientific enterprise? I think wonder and awe fits or should fit through the whole uh, sequence of the scientific enterprise. In other words, a sense of awe and wonder about the natural world should inspire curiosity to begin with, which should then inspire scientific investigation. Hopefully, awe and wonder inspires the whole process of scientific study, and then awe and wonder at the findings of scientific investigation. So, so astronomy, I think, ha, um, has a little bit of an easier way of, of dealing with this because almost everything we look at immediately inspires a sense, I think, of awe and wonder. Some other sciences, you have to dig a little deeper. I had one colleague who studied viruses, and he said it was a little Not unfair so wonderful. that astronomers could show all these beautiful pictures um, when what he was studying was a little hard to evoke that sense of awe and wonder. And yet, if you look more carefully at how uh, even the smallest of the small operate, it can and should, I think, inspire a sense of, of curiosity and amazement. And then 
the science is a wonderful tool to help us understand the details of how these natural processes work. And um, I don't think that should in any way take away the sense of wonder and awe. In fact, just the opposite. I think understanding the patterns of how things work and how natural laws and mathematics work together and su to successfully create these macro processes that we observe in nature should actually give us an even deeper sense of awe and wonder. And, and I especially feel this as a Christian believer myself, that these are things we should be very grateful for, um, that the, the natural world is providential and it works. So for you as a believer, I take it that you're saying that you find yourself uh, resonating with the psalmist. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Um, tell us about how, uh, what it's been like for you and your journey of faith as a person of science and a person who is a believer in Jesus Christ. Absolutely. So I grew up uh, in a Christian family where, you know, going to church was as natural as going to a family gathering, and it was, in a sense, a family gathering. So, uh, and so I'm grateful for that. And, and even, um, you know, many people have personal testimonies very different from that, growing up in a very different environment. And it's interesting to me that even though many of us come from a different pathway of faith, we come together um, as brothers and sisters. So, but in my case, um, I, I don't ever remember a time not believing the basics of the Christian faith and um, enjoying the love of a Christian fellow, uh, church and family, uh, not a perfect group, of course, but, but certainly revealing to me what love looks like. And we all had an understanding that the natural world around us is God's creation. And I actually think that set the, bound, the, 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 the foundation for my love of science because properly understood, understanding the natural world as being something that is rooted in God's intentions then is a good basis for, for those of us who are Christians to go into science because we understand we're studying the details of something that is good and that that honors God for us to learn more details in with integrity about what what the natural world is like and so I think that those basic foundations of of love and of understanding the goodness of creation and that feeling that studying the details of it is honoring to God all helped to open the doors for me to go into science even though I didn't know any scientists per se and my faith walk has been uh, more about how do I live out this, this life of faith in very different contexts. And that's true for all of us, right? But, but you know, we enter different ages of our life or we move to different places or we go on different career paths. And it's like starting all over again in some sense. You know, how do I, how do I walk um, with the Lord in this area and that area? And so that's kind of been my, my walk of faith is, is you know, going off to a, a faraway place to get my education and um, st studying things that I had didn't personally know anyone in my family that had studied before, and going from there. So it's been quite a quite a wild and wonderful ride. So, if there is a young man or young woman listening to this podcast and they're 
interested in the STEM field, uh, science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, what, what encouragement or advice would you have? Well, I think studying the natural world through science and its applications through technology and engineering can be a, very, a wonderful way of using one's gifts, talents, and interests. Uh, it's um, not separate from a life of ministry. It can be a life of ministry and in many different ways. First of all, I'm a big fan of what we call basic research. So I don't think that um, all kinds of scientific work needs to have an immediate obvious application. I mean, we all want cancer to be cured. We all want um, some of our big problems solved. But so the way science works is that you first need to understand some of the very basic principles and that's called basic research. And so that means, yes, the study of basic theoretical physics is important. Yes, the study of cosmology and astronomy is important. Uh, yes, the study of basic biological theories is important. And then those things help found the, form the foundation for the more applied research and technology, which can be used to both address problems, whether it's health problems or uh, or challenges in, in uh, human flourishing in different ways, or whether it's uh, inspiring kind of new uh, frontiers like space exploration or this kind of thing. All of that, I think, is, comes under the rubric, I think, of first honoring, as a Christian, honoring God by honoring God's handiwork, by studying it with integrity, and then using that knowledge in a way that uplifts others and or helps others to uplift others. So that to me fits v right in with a Christian calling. And so anyone who's interested in these kinds of fields should feel welcome um, to come in, in fact, invited to study. Um, I hope uh, parents who have children who have talents in these areas can encourage them to go into that as a, as a very appropriate uh, career direction for someone, uh, for a person of faith. And even if you're not going to be specifically a scientist or an engineer, it turns out that almost everything in our lives these days is intimately involved one way or the other with science and technology, even if we're not thinking about it. So whether it's health care or uh, whether it's the kinds of cars we drive, transportation, communication, our food, agriculture, environment, all of these things that matter to the welfare of humans and other, other life on earth uh, are intimately connected to science and technology. To, so someone going into any of those fields or even more humanities related fields, whether that's music or art um, or, uh, or theology for that matter, everything is enriched and aided if we have an accurate and good understanding of where science and technology are right now what are the things that they inform us about to make our ministries more effective? What are the challenges that science and technology are bringing upon us uh, for society ethically? And what are the, the opportunities they bring? So I think whether someone goes into a STEM field directly or is going into some other field but becomes more aware and more comfortable with understanding the relevance of STEM fields, I think it's all beneficial for, for the church. So speaking of the church, how then, if, if, uh, if, if 
someone is working in a church or parachurch ministry and, and they have people in their church who is involved in some type of scientific field or they have young people who are interested in going into the field, what's the best way? Uh, what are ways that you would recommend for us to minister to them, to, to be an encouragement? To, what, what challenges are they going to have to, uh, to face that we need to be aware of? And how can we be a help and a blessing? Uh, how can the church minister to those who are scientists? Great question. So first of all, I think making science and technology part of church life is is a helpful um, foundation. So for, for in other words, um, making it clear that studying the natural world and, and even in, in uh, scientific and technical ways is not something that's some other world different from the interests of the church, but it's actually right part and parcel. And, and, and so how do you do that? Well, I would say, for example, maybe look within your own congregation. You've probably already got people in there who are working in some science-related field and have them maybe give a, give a talk in some Sunday school class or some other setting where they just explain what they do and, and that that's of interest and have people be able to learn a little bit more about what goes on in the life of people in science-related fields. Or you can bring in guest speakers and to show interest in the work itself. Um, you know, what exactly uh, uh, is, are the interesting uh, topics and issues in that particular realm of work? So that first sets a cultural ex a, a openness in a congregation. Secondly, I think um, encouraging young people to consider these types of fields as a valid life of ministry as important in its own way as going into things that are more obviously uh, um, a source of, of ministry, of, of life uh, service to others. Thirdly, I think for people who are already in these fields, it's helpful if churches understand that, the, that sometimes, uh, you know, feeling successful or useful in a technical field, it takes a long time. It can be very tedious, difficult technical work. Um, and to find some interest and encouragement from people in the congregation and from the pastorate is, is really helpful, um, especially students. I mean, I know science students spend years uh, doing, working on their degrees, and sometimes the research has to be started all over again. There are discouraging moments. It's, it's, there's often times when you, it's not clear that any progress is being made. You, uh, and just to, to know that the church community is, is supportive and interested and behind them is, is really helpful. And um, so I, I think there's lots of ways that the church can show its congregation and its members that science is interesting. It's part of the life. We welcome it and we support you if you're involved in it. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you about what resources you might recommend. But for in the last few minutes that I have, I, I, I'd like to be... I'd like to ask some geeky questions. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, Beetlejuice, uh, <laughs> it's been in the news lately. Yeah. And uh, would you tell our listeners what is Beetlejuice? It's not the Tim Burton movie. Uh, it is something else. Uh, uh, what's going on and what would it mean if some of the things uh, that they think might happen happened soon? Well, this is very hot topic of the moment because there is this bright uh, red giant star in the constellation Orion 
It's most easily visible in the wintertime in the northern hemisphere. Uh, but this star is known to be a red giant star, which means it's kind of at the latter stages of its of its existence as a star. And when you say it's a giant, my understanding is if it if it were in our solar system, it would reach all the way out to Jupiter or something of that nature. It's something e of that nature, it's right? Enormous. So it's enormous. Its outer atmosphere has expanded out. Um, it is basically starting to run out of its continual supply of hydrogen fuel in the core, which is what keeps stars shining stably for a long time. But eventually, things get a little unstable in there. And what happens with a star like this, which is bigger than our sun, um, is that eventually uh, the instability grows to a point where the star explodes as a supernova explosion. Now, we've, we've known for a long time that Betelgeuse is, is, is in that final stage, but that stage can last hundreds of thousands of years, maybe even more. No, I want to think yeah. that it's going to explode okay. in the next three well, years. Well, what's changed in the last few weeks and months is that people have noticed, astute observers have noticed, that this star has become visibly dimmer in the sky. And, you know, you can tell that just with your naked eye, that it is not as bright as it was a few months ago. So what's going on there? So that's kind of got the excitement going that maybe this star is reaching this major instability right now. So it's close enough to be seen is when it blows up, is this going to be, I mean, are we going to be marshmallows toasted? <laughs> when Because you know, it's what, 600 light years away, something of that nature? Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's hundreds you know, hundreds of light years away, which of course in astronomy, everything we're looking at actually happened in the past. But, but what, what, what you're talking about more is the, is the distance realm. And um, uh, my understanding is that we don't, we're not facing a threat if it explodes, but we will be seeing a really bright and a, a wonderfully bright feature in the night sky. And so all of us who are kind of uh, space geeks are, are looking up at Betelgeuse and kind of hoping it does Yeah, explode. my understanding is it would, yeah. you, you, we would be able to see it during the daytime. Uh, yes, it will be very bright, at least for a short while, uh, and then fade over time. Uh, and, you know, scientifically what's interesting is that that star would be basically uh, spilling its guts in a way and, and, and dispersing the, the heavier elements that it has fused throughout its existence into the interstellar medium, making that material available for, for other star systems. But, but here's the deal. Uh, it turns out that this star has been kind of variable in its brightness for quite some time. And it may be, in fact, most astronomers kind of think that its, its dimness at the moment is a natural part of that variation. And so this is unlikely to portend a very soon explosion of the star. Um, so uh, so we're, we don't actually think it's going to explode anytime soon. Um, but if it does, then maybe we'll take this podcast off the air. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> one can only hope uh, it would be uh, quite a spectacular thing uh, to see in the sky. For... Uh, someone listening who would like to be able to minister in a more effective way to, uh, to people of faith and science, or perhaps uh, be able to uh, engage with people of science who m may not be believers, or if you have you know, young people thinking about going into the, the STEM fields, what resources would you recommend? Where, where, where could they go to find, uh, what books might you recommend, what websites? Uh, 
uh, where would you where would you recommend that they uh, look? Sure. So um, there are quite a few resources. Um, different uh, faith traditions sometimes have their own organizations and resources on how to relate uh, science and faith. I'm on the board of an organization called BioLogos, B-I-O-L-O-G-O-S, biologos.org, which seeks to find harmony between biblical faith and science. And I think there's a lot of good resources on there for uh, just people, clergy and, and, and congregations in general about the relationship of science and faith. In fact, I have an article on there, if you search deeply in there, on uh, how science can be used to inspire worship. Um, because I think sometimes people hear about science in the church, and first of all, they don't know if it's relevant, and, and second of all, then they start feeling many that, that they're uncomfortable because they don't feel qualified to, to talk about science, so they just kind of avoid the topic. Well, that doesn't help because science is a part of everyone's life today, and so to show to be relevant, especially for young people to see relevance, they need to at least be able to discuss science helpfully. And science doesn't always have to be seen as a as something to argue about. I, I think the entrance point should be praise. So my, my essay on there is called Science as a, as a Way of Inspiring Worship, something like that. Um, I also appreciate an organization called the American Scientific Affiliation. Now that name seems very generic, but the ASA, the website is asa3.org, is a network of Christians and people in science, Christians in science fields, or, or people of faith who are interested in science. And there's a lot of resources on there, and particularly uh, good meetings and fellowship there. Um, I find that the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion in the UK has a lot of interesting resources on their website. And there are plenty of great books. Um, uh, I, I like Daryl Falk's book, book, Coming to Peace with Science, but there are others, and I don't know if on, on this podcast website if there's a chance to list some resources, but maybe we can. Um, that's all that comes to mind at the moment. Yes. Well, Dr. Wiseman, the thing that uh, uh, I appreciate that what you're doing and I agree with so strongly is that we want to move beyond simply the notion of a conflict model, that it has been... Uh, exploited by some, uh, it certainly has been counterproductive, and it doesn't tell the whole story, that there is there are real opportunities here for dialogue. And so I appreciate how you are modeling that. We have had with us uh, Dr. Jennifer Wiseman, astrophysicist. Dr. Wiseman, thank you for being on our podcast today. It's my pleasure, and I, I would be re remiss if I didn't mention also the Dialogue on Science, Ethics, and Religion, or DOZER program. This is a program of a science society, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, but there are some great resources there, including video discussions of great cutting-edge science and how it is important to people of faith and to ethicists about how we apply science in today's world. And that just isn't, isn't just about, you know, the, 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 the long-standing discussions of, of how we got here as life forms, but also questions about hot topics in genetics and neuroscience and space exploration and environmental stewardship and all kinds of things that matter to our world. So the, the Dozer program is also a great uh, place to see uh, people talking thoughtfully about these topics. That is at the AAAS website, and there are a number of videos and resources there. Yes, that's right. 
Thank you, Dr. Wiseman. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure.